What's up, everyone? This is Danny. This is a bonus episode of the podcast I just wanted to introduce. I recorded this interview a little while ago with Dr. Ian Condry from MIT. He is an anthropologist and an author of Hip Hop Japan and the Soul of Anime. I initially thought this would be a great interview for the script I had written about lo-fi and nostalgia, but our conversation kind of went in a different direction, so I decided I'd rather let the interview stand on its own. On top of that, I ended up reworking a lot of the lo-fi episode anyway. With that said, this is still a great interview. Ian has a lot of interesting stuff to say and a lot of really cool experiences, so I hope you enjoy this little bonus episode. You are listening to Automated Beat Machine. audience first, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Ian Condry. I'm a cultural anthropologist. I've been teaching at MIT since 2002. I've written two books. Uh, one is called Hip Hop Japan and the other is called The Soul of Anime. Uh, yeah. And you did, a, correct me if I'm wrong, about a year of ethnographic study in Japan's underground hip hop scene? Yeah. From 95 to 97, it was a year and a half uh, of uh, the intensive field work uh, looking at Japanese nightclubs and recording studios in Tokyo. Uh, yeah, it was the underground scene back then, although some of the artists from that, that era have become pop stars. Uh, but yes, it was quite underground back in the day. Uh, yeah, and it was, uh, I mean, I've lived in Japan about five years altogether. Um, and I would do, I visit back a couple times a year when it's not a pandemic. Uh, so yeah, probably about two, two and a half years of field work on the uh, the Japanese hip hop project. Can you describe how this project even came about? What was it, what was the kindling that led to your interest in hip hop in Japan? And more specifically than that, how did you get a foothold in this scene to even conduct the ethnography? Because I kind of get the impression that underground scenes can be a little bit difficult to infiltrate, especially if, you know, if you're from an entirely different country with a different language. Well, right. The first trick is to learn Japanese. That's exactly right. And and that's the, you know, and that's the rule for anthropology anyway, is that you need to do field work among the people you want to study and you need to do it in their language. Uh, so uh, by the time I started my field work, I had about four years of Japanese language study. I'd lived in Japan maybe 15 months or so before I started the field work. So I had a little bit of experience uh, with the country and the language. Um, and yeah, you know, I, I think one of the rules of doing field work is that if you just commit yourself to getting to know people and spending time doing what they're doing, uh, that you can you can find your way in. <laughs> but it's true, you can't just show up for one time and expect people to open up to you. You have to spend months and months, and uh, but then it's quite possible to enter all kinds of scenes. Why hip hop specifically in my Japan? Well, let's see. I mean, I grew up with a, a interest in music. Uh, I had a father who was also a professor, but he had a side uh, hobby of playing bawdy Irish folk songs. And <laughs> and so, uh, you know, I learned from an early age that short songs could tell big stories. Uh, so I always had a an interest in music and language. And 
uh, get to college in the mid 80s. And uh, I grew up in rural upstate New York, so I didn't have much interaction with hip hop there. Uh, but once I got to college in Boston area, uh, yeah, really got turned on. I mean, it was the uh, it was the era of Run DMC and Beastie Boys and uh, some of this, uh, you know, everything from Sugar Hill Gang on up uh, Grandmaster Flash. It was sweeping through our pop music worlds. And uh, and I really gravitated towards the importance of lyrics, which I, I saw as really overlapping with uh, some of the folk music I had grown up with as well. Uh, so I had a long time interest in music. Uh, and then uh, I'd studied some Japanese in college and spent a year in Japan after college on the JET program. Uh, which is still going on. It's a nice opportunity for people to get to Japan if they want to try teaching English in small towns. Uh, and I did that for a year. Um, and then when I got into cultural anthropology as a graduate student, you know, this was the now the mid 90s. Uh, and, you know, one of the big issues then was thinking about globalization and is culture changing because of globalization. And there were all these arguments about how either there was a homogenization of global culture that was happening, uh, cultural imperialism, some people would call it, yeah. um, while, whereas other people would argue, no, you know, that it, the spread of global culture actually gets intermingled with local culture and creates something entirely new. Uh, and so we shouldn't see it as a kind of overtaking, but as a, a kind of enriching through hybridization and combination. Uh, this really at work. And so that was a topic I found very fascinating. And uh, I thought to study it in music, uh, you know, and one of the interesting things, I guess, is that when I, I went over for a preliminary visit to Japan, to Tokyo in the summer of 1994, and I met with record company people and music magazine folks and uh, radio DJs. Uh, and I said, oh, you know, I, I heard there's this, this Japanese hip hop going on. What's up with that? And, and they said, oh, yeah, it's going on, but it's really lame. Uh, it's going to it's going to disappear in a year or two. The kids are just in it for the fashion. They don't understand black culture. They don't understand civil rights. They don't understand racism. Uh, they don't really get hip hop and uh, it'll probably disappear. So I that you should definitely should not study it. Um, but then what they said also was, Look, if you really want to see it, you can go to the clubs. That's where you can go check it out. Uh, check out these nightclubs. You'll see how lame it is. And then, yeah, come back to us and we'll find a better topic for you. And and so I went to the clubs and the young people are on stage and, and they say, they say there's no future for hip hop in Japan, but they're wrong. This is the coolest music there is out there. We're going to teach you about rhyming. We're going to teach you about rap battles. We're going to teach you about DJ, scratch mix, graffiti, uh, break dancing. Uh, this whole culture of hip hop is totally fascinating. And we're going to open uh, uh, your minds to this world. And, and so it was very interesting at the time because here were the, the elites in the, the recording industry, the, the elites in the music industry and all sorts of sides of it, uh, who really controlled access uh, to who gets to make records, who gets reported on the magazines, who gets played on the radio. All of these people were very against the notion uh, of hip hop. Um, there was even a, a remarkable aspect of it that there's a magazine called Black Music Review, uh, and they refused to cover hip hop. <laughs> huh. Yeah, they were about jazz and blues and soul and R&B, but they didn't they didn't really like hip hop, actually. They uh, didn't they weren't really sure. Uh, and so it, it was a very interesting time. Right. And so that was 1994. And then I went back in 1995 to start my uh, extended field work. And um, 
Um, and at that point, uh, just before I, I had returned, there'd been three million selling hit singles uh, uh, that were Japanese rap music. Uh, and so this skepticism among the elites started to evaporate uh, and it became kind of a new era. And so, yeah, although still a lot of skepticism, I must say, and it took a while for things to catch on. Um, and uh, nevertheless, what you saw was that the musicians who built their audience through these club scenes, you know, and through their events and, and sort of one person at a time almost, uh, that that was actually the way to understand cultural globalization, uh, that it wasn't about sort of the power of American culture or the, uh, the power of a, a distant, important country uh, that really drove the movement, but it, it was the artists on the scene and the fans who got into them. And, and I fit in, my role was as a writer. I, I wasn't the only writer on the scene. I was one of the few foreigner writers, but even then I wasn't even the only foreigner writer. Uh, and so it was sort of that's what I, I came away thinking and understanding and arguing in the book is that uh, the, the this gemba, this actual site of these nightclubs and these recording studios, uh, that that's what really drove the globalization. Uh, and that's what that's the way to understand sort of the power of cultural flows. I mean, it also means that the idea that this is imposing from the outside some kind of cultural understanding doesn't make sense. And it's much better to understand what it is that locals take up about uh, any cultural form uh, and uh, and how they use it. If you really want to understand uh, how globalization operates. What was your sense of people in the scene, what they understood about the origins of hip hop and maybe civil rights and where all that came from? Well, first of all, a lot of it, when I would give talks in the U.S., I, I would hear a lot of uh, fellow professors types say, well, you know, those Japanese don't really get it. Uh, they don't really understand hip hop. You know, what are they doing? Um, and what struck me was how wrong that was, that in fact, no, they were studying uh, civil rights. They were reading the autobiography of Al Malcolm X in uh, translation. Uh, they were watching the movies. They were uh, trying to follow uh, the politics of hip hop. Um, but at the same time, recognizing that what made hip hop partially distinctive was this uh, the importance of representing who you are, representing your neighborhood, your your crew, your posse, uh, that that was really the key. And so there was always this interesting mix of, on the one hand, it's it's sort of borrowed culture. On the other hand, they made it their own by talking about their own lives in their own language to their friends and, and people who were there in the audience. And so uh, it was just, it was a very interesting, uh, complex, uh, complex mix. Um, and, uh, um, and I came away thinking, you know, a lot of those criticisms that people make uh, come from a place of ignorance uh, and, and that they don't actually understand the commitment uh, that artists and musicians make uh, to learning, uh, not just a style of music, but a way of understanding the world. Totally. That's awesome. So can you can you speak a little bit more about the Gemba? Am I saying that right? The, the yeah, Gemba is the right word. Gemba. So Gemba is this interesting word that uh, many people used in Japan. Uh, it's used for a number of things, uh, but it was especially used for these nightclubs, uh, the, the, the hip hop gemba. So a gemba is, is it's made up of two characters, place, which just means place, pretty generic word for place. Um, that's the ba. And then 
Gen is part of this other character uh, to appear, to become actualized, become realized. So a Gemba is a place where something actually happens. Um, and it was tricky. I, I couldn't find a, a great, easy translation for it. Uh, so I ended up just using that word in the book. Um, yeah. not, I'm not sure it was the best idea, actually. But anyway, <laughs> I went with it. And uh, so I call it Gemba globalization. So what are other Gembas? A factory where you build cars or shoes. That, that's a Gemba. A scene of a crime. That's a Gemba. Uh, if you're shooting on location, a film, you're shooting on location. That's a Gemba. Uh, so it all has this idea of a place where something actually happens. Um, but I, I found it in a way, a, a very interesting way to refer to nightclubs uh, because it was something more than a performance space, right? It was a, it was a place where the scene became actualized. Um, and I found that quite inspirational too for getting beyond this notion that culture kind of flows. At the time, the, the big arguments were that, well, if you want to understand globalization, it's a structure of flows. Look at what these structures are. Look at what these networks are. See how these flows happen. Um, and I was arguing against that. I, I, was, I was saying, no, it's not a structure of flows. It's people. There's people who are driving this and you can get to know them. They're, they're available. I mean, you can't see them. You can't talk to them before they go on stage. But when they're hanging out in the club for the two hours after the show all night, uh, you know, these shows were always midnight to 5 a.m. Uh, when the yeah. trains stopped running in Japan and Tokyo. Uh, so the, the show would start, go on, usually are one or two, the headliner would come on around three, uh, things would wind up around four, but that time of like 4am to 5am was just great fieldwork time for me because people had gotten tired of talking to their friends. They'd already told all their stories. They come over and talk to the guy, Gene, the foreigner, <laughs> foreigner there in the corner and say, what, what the hell are you doing here? You keep coming here. What's up? Um, and, and that was over, you know, over the months I, I got to, uh, you know, in the year, uh, I got to know actually quite a few people um, who are now, you know, actually, it's one of the criticisms that come, comes up about my book that I, I write about Zebra and Mummy D and, and Utamaru as if they're uh, underground artists because now they're bona fide pop stars known throughout the country. But I'm like, yeah, this was this was uh, 25 years ago. That's why <laughs> <laughs> they were they were super underground back then. You'd be surprised how underground it was. Uh, so. <laughs> Um, so that was the Gemba idea, and that, that became sort of the core of my fieldwork and also sort of core of the theory I developed around how, how globalization works. It sounds like really exciting fieldwork. Did you have any particular formative experiences in the scene that, that stand out to this day? One of the uh, shows I would go to was every Thursday night, and I, I got to know these folks pretty well, uh, especially my friend Umedi, Umehara. Dai Umehara Masaru, and he called himself Umedi. And he was a rapper and, and had a bit of a, he had a few releases and uh, then became more of a producer. Um, but I got to know him there and he was just such a, a huge part of, uh, of getting me integrated into the scene and helping explain things in very patient uh, ways uh, for a person who didn't understand a whole lot about what was going on. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, uh, unfortunately, he died not too long ago. He had he got brain cancer and died at a young age, but had just a very formative influence on the scene and, and on me especially. Um, and anyway, his event that he had, uh, he and his group of friends organized every Thursday, there would always be this thing where uh, 
something would catch on, you know, it'd be some like kind of little, little boom lit, little hit, uh, something that would happen. So, uh, you know, for, for a few weeks, somehow everybody had platinum blonde hair. I don't know what happened. I don't know who told who, but somehow everybody started showing up with platinum blonde hair. That lasted about a month. And then there was a break dancer and, and he would, uh, he had this shtick where whenever you saw him, he'd, he'd do like, he's pulling a gun out of his pocket and go, Hey, and then everybody, uh, and everybody started doing that. So that, that caught on for a few weeks and then it died out. Um, so I was used to this sort of trend of little things happening in the club. And then my DJ friend comes up to me and he said, DJ Etz, and he says, uh, Hey Ian, you know, uh, there's a, there's a new thing going around the club. I said, Oh yeah, what, what, what's going on? He says, people are doing imitations of you. <laughs> I said, what, what are you talking about? Oh my God. What are they saying? I could already imagine, you know, how embarrassing all my, my Japanese mistakes, all my, uh, my handing around business cards in a club. It made no sense taking notes, you know, right. kind of being, it was a little awkward doing field work in a club situation, but yeah. it's good. It's part of the work you have to do as an anthropologist and as a writer. So just have to suck it up. I said, well, well, that's what, what the hell, what, what, what are they doing? He's, he's like, I, I, I can't tell you, I can't tell you, but he's like, it's too funny. It's just too funny. Oh my God. It's so funny. I was like, so at first, I, I was a little taken back by this. So all, all of a sudden I'm a little more self-conscious. I'm a little more, oh my God, what are they? They're all making fun of me and all having fun, uh, you know, good jokes at a uh, little Ian's on there. And, um, um, but then as I thought about it over time, you know, I said, you know what, you know what this is, is this is the moment that I went from being a foreigner, a writer, somebody studying hip hop to all of a sudden I was just Ian. Like I was now just a character on the scene and, and I I'd stopped becoming a kind of category of person. I actually just become part of the scene. Uh, it was not quite the way I imagined I'd become part of the scene, but uh, it, it's exactly what happened. And, and so, yeah, that was kind of formative. And I thought it was an interesting sort of lesson about field work as well that you know, that's the transformation you're looking for. It's it's not fun to have people make fun of you, but on the other hand, who am I? Somebody special that I'm going to make fun of? That doesn't make sense either. Uh, and so that took about six months at that one place. And then there was another show I went to every month uh, and the same exact thing happened. Somebody came up to me and said, hey, you know what, Ian, everybody's starting to, everybody's starting to do imitations of you. Uh, and I said, yeah, that's an old story for me. Uh, and, and here I was like, oh, I can do the math, you know, because here for this one, when I only went to once a month and plus a little other events too. I was like, that took a year. Whereas this other one, I go once a week, it took like four to six months. So I was like, all right, interesting. Jot that down. <laughs> that was a formative experience for me. But yeah, there was lots of formative experiences. I mean, I got to see these guys like Zebra. I mean, he's a television pop star now, Utamaru. He's got the mm -hmm. most popular, you know, radio show in Japan. And yet back in the day, you just see how hard they worked, you know, week after week, night after night. Uh, and how, you know, being a musician, staying out all night, trying to cobble it together. Uh, it was really quite inspirational to me um, because here you've got, you got a music style. I mean, if, if if you told anybody in Japan in 1994 you were going to be a, a rapper, musician, there was no there was no path to do that. There was no there was no way. There was no job like that at the time. And and they had to sort of figure it out and carve it out themselves. And what's more, the people who were in charge of the the industry were totally unconvinced and and skeptical. And and so for me, you know, one of the big lessons is that young people are probably likely to hear uh, that some things are impossible and you can't make a career like that. And what are you thinking? Um, and I'm here to tell you that's normal <laughs> for old people to say young people don't know what they're doing and you shouldn't trust them. 
they don't know what they're talking about, even even though they're in control. So, you know, that was definitely formative for me as well. Gotcha. Did you ever find out what the impression looked like? No, I can imagine, no. <laughs> Fair enough. So I think the, the kind of lodestone here that kind of connects your work to how I'm kind of deconstructing it is the producer Nujabes. And you you published Hip Hop Japan in 2006. Uh, Nujabes was already a known factor by then. And I think he he definitely comes up in the book at least once. Can you tell me how he factored into your work, if at all? He, to be honest, he didn't factor in my work. I, I didn't know about him at the time. I mean, I, I knew by 2006, the book was pretty, you know, in academic publishing, I had to finish that book around 2004. Uh, and yeah. so it still takes two years to come out. So, no, I came into it was more in my anime research and getting turned on to Samurai Champloo, that anime mm -hmm. series that uh, Watanabe Shinichiro made. Uh, uh, that that's when I got more turned on to Nujo Bays. And it's remarkable music. It's absolutely fabulous. A tragedy that he died young. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but yeah, I think, no, absolutely fascinating music. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I, I mean, I never bumped into him on the club scene, but there was all sorts of things going on that I didn't bump into. Uh, so I do find it fascinating, though, that he he really has become the centerpiece of a lot of Americans understanding of uh of hip-hop in japan and, and it's not surprising i think the music is absolutely fabulous and uh and i have a chance to interact with shingo too on a few occasions who i know oh, nice. has also collaborated with new Jabez. and uh yeah i think it's it's just great i think the music is sort of really hit hit a uh hit a sweet spot and this idea of lo-fi beats to study to is quite the global phenomenon today yeah yes and so that's kind of where this this conversation switches over to your work about anime in this episode, in the script, I identified Toonami as this sort of vector of cross-pollination. I sat around watching Toonami in my tweens with my friends without even having an awareness of like what anime was or even, you know, Japan was as a nation, mm -hmm. uh, other than that the animation looked kind of different. But before then, I feel like it was extremely difficult to come across anime as an American consumer. So that block along with Adult Swim was this phenomenon that allowed Americans to access this media. And now suddenly you have Kanye's music video for Stronger, which is just an extended Akira reference and tons of rappers reference Dragon Ball Z and Naruto, which, you know, personally I can't stand anymore. But what complexities do you think this cross-pollination introduced to the scene and globalization of hip hop and Japanese hip hop more generally? Well, to me, it's another example of how interesting culture has become, you know, that with uh, with right tsunami, Adult Swim, you know, the Internet generally uh, that it just the speed and complexity with which you can uh, experience other cultural forms is just accelerated at such an amazing rate. Um, and I, yeah, I just think there's this huge cross pollinization um, all the time. I mean, one of the, although I had colleagues who would say, oh, these Japanese rappers don't really get it. I would also make a point of talking to American rappers whenever I had a chance to say, hey, well, you know, there's Japanese rap going on. You know, what do you think about it? So, I, you know, I met Snoop Dogg in what, 97, Jurassic 5, I talked to much later. And, and it was interesting. The answer was almost always the same, which was, uh, we don't have any problem with other people making hip hop, we, but it's not all great. We we like the stuff that's good. 
right. <laughs> you know, and so I always found, a, you know, among musicians, actually a, a huge open mindedness about it. And not surprisingly, I mean, I think any kind of artists have to be pretty open minded folks generally, and they're taking influence from all sorts of places. And uh, I think it's just been fascinating to see how, um, you know, what anime was in the 90s was Pokemon. And then, you know, the more adult stuff starts floating in. And then you just you, you have different cultures of animation appearing all over the world. Uh, and it's just it's absolutely fascinating to watch develop. Uh, not to mention Avatar, you know, <laughs> American yeah. anime. You've got manga artists all over the world now. Uh, you know, do they call it manga or they don't? There's a lot of debate about that. I think either way is fine, I guess. Uh, but the fact is, it's participating in uh, a similar cultural form and adding to it and, and making it, the world a more interesting place. Absolutely. And yeah, during, you mentioned it already, during the Adult Swim block, I think it was probably most explicit around 2005, you have at least two shows, The Boondocks and even more so Samurai Champloo, that are self-consciously mixing hip-hop culture, anime, and Japanese culture. Was this a unique moment, a fluke of some media directors at Cartoon Network with some cultural insight, or was this kind of mix inevitable? Yeah, no, it's a really interesting question. I, I don't know the answer to that. I, I, I do know the the I, don't, I mean, I don't know how Cartoon Network decided to, to get on board here and, and, and what that whole process was. Um, I did get to visit Cartoon Network studios once, and it was remarkable to see how much better appointed they were than the anime studios I was visiting in Japan. Really? Um, yeah, I, it, it's interesting. Um, it was just part of a different two different worlds, but, but partly too. I mean, in Japan, they were still doing a lot of the drawing there. And in Cartoon Network, I mean, they'd started offshoring all the drawings. Uh, I mean, not Cartoon Network itself, but but American Animation Studios have been offshoring uh, the, the drawings uh, to Japan, actually, right, mm -hmm. in the 70s. And then Japan, too, starts offshoring to Korea in the 90s. Uh, so it's always been a global phenomenon that, that's had a lot of mixing involved um i my, my guess is the, the samurai champloo i mean first of all it, it was a great show i think yeah. that's that was part of it uh, they the cartoon network certainly understood the success of cowboy bebop um and this is the same director uh, so kind of pastiche of culture there yeah so you know and and i i did i do know the director just very slightly i mean he's an acquaintance i don't know him that well but we've hung out a few times watanabe shinichiro and and he's He's a real music guy. I mean, he he cares deeply about music and he was completely inspired by hip hop and these ideas of represent and um, uh, and being from, you know, where you're from and who you are. And 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 he he like it did. I mean, it's it's a little you got to take all these talk, this talk with a little grain of salt. But mm -hmm. but I, I take it I take it literally that, that he was inspired by this, how true it is. That this is all because we need more historical nuance, I'm sure. But mm -hmm. But Watanabe told the story of how, you know, that was the way with uh, with uh, samurai samurai fighters in the past that they would they'd run out into the middle of the field and they say, I'm so and so son of so and so from so and so who is valiant enough to fight me. And then someone else would ride out and say, I'm so and so the son of so and so from so and so. And uh, let's battle. And then they battle out. And and uh, and what I said, see, it's just like a rap battle. It's just like Queens versus the Bronx. And uh, uh, check it out. And, and so we've got it, too. And, and so I, I know he loved that idea. 
And I, I know he also, I, 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 he had a great time just, and he loved sampling, right? And this, he was sampling all these old samurai movie cliches. I mean, it's really, it's, it's not about real samurai. It's about samurai movies. And, and so, you know, it, it's, it's hard to notice if you don't know the history of Japan, but, but if you watch that samurai champloo, one of the funny things about it is it, although it, it sort of, follows these three characters as, and their travails and their adventures as they march across Japan. Each of the, the episodes is, tends to be set in an entirely different era. There's like a 300-year space, and they'll jump forwards and backwards. And, and the Japanese, he's like, just like those, those rappers would sample, the producers would sample, they'd sample some old soul, and they'd sample some old jazz, and they'd mix it with a new beat. He's like, that's what I wanted to do. And so uh, uh, so I think that was that, that was really what was going on there. And and so that was on the Japan side of it. And I think on the American side, it was just, it was pretty funny. Uh, and it was clever. And it had that sort of fast pace of uh, of cowboy bebop, and it was just a sort of a new take on it. So I, I just think it was super clever. And the, and the Boondocks, I mean, come on, that's it was a phenomenal comic strip, and then a phenomenal uh, anime as well. So just great stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, Huey Freeman from the Boondocks, I think it's worth noting, is this character who is both a uh, reference to Huey Newton, uh, co-founder of the Black Panthers, and canonically proficient with a katana. So. It's just this, I feel like it goes back to uh, you talking about how uh, these people in the Japanese hip hop scene are, you know, they are reading Malcolm X and getting familiar with this uh, cross-cultural kind of stuff. So basically this is this whole new genre of hip hop. What role do you think Shamplu itself played in that? It certainly wasn't as widely watched as uh, Cowboy Bebop. The funny thing about sort of my field work and, and, and being an anthropologist is that you know, when I was in the one scene, I was, I was deep into that one scene. And then when I switched over to studying anime, um, you know, there was, there was like a, a, a four year period there where I, I was hardly listening to music. You know, I had to watch anime all the time. <laughs> and I was trying to meet people and trying to get in the scene and reading manga and doing all that. And so, you know, just as sort of New Japan is sort of exploding and taking off and becoming this phenomenon in the U.S., uh, I was taking a break and then I, I came back to it, you know, a little bit later. Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't, it's hard to say. I mean, you ask the right question, but but it's one of those questions that, that in my experience, like, you know, is it a is it a TV show that drives this or is it, you know, an event? Is it something? And, and, and my my sense is that it's always more complicated uh, and, and that it's a whole range of things. And, and you can tell actually all different stories about how this stuff uh, comes in and becomes important in people's lives. And, um, uh, you know, I, I don't know if I was, you know, if I, I was speculating a little bit. I mean, one of the things you see in hip hop is just the, the kind of radical change in genre and style that happens year to year. You know, yeah. you, you can go back. I mean, like 90s hip hop is back now. It's kind of funny. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and uh, you know, even I've got this radio, I've got a weekly radio show um, that is a uh, hip hop, Japanese hip hop uh, beat scene, a little experimental stuff too. And, and, um, uh, and it's true, you know, my, my most, uh, my most popular shows, I got a little archive on Mixcloud. The name of the show is Near and Far. Uh, and just find under my name on Mixcloud, Ian Condry. And uh, uh, yeah, but the, the, you know, I, I go through and check, you know, so who's been listening to what and 
And, uh, you know, I, I try to sort of analyze what, what goes through. But it's true. It's the 90s hip hop is what people are. are that, that's the one they really like. And 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 for me, I'm like, ah, I've listened to this stuff for so long. I'm, I'm, I already know this world so well. It's hard. It's hard for me to hear it as fresh. Uh, but then when I play it and I play it for other people and, and look at how they're listening to it, I say, yeah, you know, well. You know, they weren't there. So no wonder. No wonder it sounds fresh. I'm like, yeah, it all sounded like this. I'm like, yeah, it's OK. But, you know, now now I'm like, oh, yeah, OK, I can see I can see the style. But you think about, you know, what's happening with grime and drill and trap, you know, it just it keeps evolving and changing. And I just think that lo-fi sound just came through right at a time when people were looking at looking for something new and stylish. And, and that just grabbed people. And I, I think and it's, you know, let's face it, it's amazing music. So. Uh, how exactly it happened? I'd be interested in knowing more, but uh, but I, I just stepped away from the scene a little bit <laughs> at that era. Yeah, yeah, gotcha. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that you mentioned trap because that's like one of the huge influences in in K-pop now too. An entirely different industry. Do you think there's any wisdom to be gained from your work on the ground in the underground hip hop scene to create communities around music? Hmm, that's an interesting question. Uh, well, I, I think you've already given the answer, which is that to think of you know, your art making, your media making, not only in terms of the content and the number of, of likes and, and uh, the number of streams, but, but to think, well, what, what would it mean to, to be part of a community? What, how would that, what would that community look like? Who, who, who would be the two people I might start with uh, <laughs> to start building that community? Uh, that, that there is something about having, they don't have to be in-person relationships, but, but having them sort of one-to-one -one or small group uh, is a very powerful thing. Um, and I, I do worry that, uh, you know, in, in my radio show, and I don't know, I release a little music under the name of Left Roman, and and the the, the platforms are all just horrible, and and how they, you know, Ian, you've had one listener on Spotify last month. I'm like, I don't, I don't want to know. I don't, I don't appreciate it. You know, I, I mean, mm -hmm. I know that one listener was me, and it's fine, and and I'm not doing it to have 50 listeners or 100 listeners or a million listeners. It doesn't. I mean, of course, I, I like the idea and it, it plays on my anxieties in a very effective way. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's it's also a false promise that, you know, then when I get 100 listeners and 1000 listeners and 5000 listeners, that then I'll, I'll be happy. And, and it's it's not true. Uh, but if I have three or four people who are like, hey, and I listen to your album, I, I really got a huge kick out of it. You know, I'll be like, mm -hmm. yeah, all right great. I'll make another album. Terrific. You know, and, and I can imagine having more people, but, but having three or four who care and who are part of it. And I can say, yeah, check out your album too. I thought it was really great. I really love it. You know, it's so, so amazing what you're doing that that's, that's community. And that's the kind of thing that could pull a hikikomori out of, out of my little bubble of uh, my digital audio workstation and, and say, Oh no, there's people out there and it matters. And it, it might not matter as much as some other people, but um maybe that's okay. So I guess there's something to that. Absolutely. Yeah. And for what it's worth, the, the first two episodes of this show so far have basically been a uh, criticism of Spotify. What you said about it being a false promise really sticks with me because it stands out as a contrast to the gum job, basically the, the in-person setting where you can actually connect with people. And when you're mediated by a platform, there's this transience and uh, this anonymity that you don't get when you're 
building a real community, uh, not mediated by, you know, this online experience. And I think, I think that's, that's a really important thing for building meaningful communities around music or art more generally. Yeah, exactly. Right. And, 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 you know, and the Gemba can be online, you know, that's one of the questions I got for a long time, you know, as you're talking about as if it has to be in person and I'm like, ah, you know, DeviantArt, Pixiv, you know, you put up your, your picture there and then, if, you know, if a couple of people comment on it and say, I really like it, I mean, it, it's a powerful thing um and uh and it's nice to do and and um you know i i i yeah yeah i, I agree and and you know for what it's worth i you know I, I think there's all sorts of problems with spotify but but what's happening with the access to music right now and i'm a big fan of Bandcamp as well it, mm -hmm. it's just mm -hmm. it's it's a remarkable thing I mean, it's one of the amazing things that if you go back in time to early 2000s i mean people were saying um uh uh, music would dry up. There'd be no more music. You know, <laughs> you know people are going to start making movies and 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 video games and things that have uh, things that make money for you. That you'll see all artists just leave music. And, and it turned out that, it, on the contrary, that you you've had a quadrupling of the amount of music that's been created recently. And so, the the old system of the '90s. I mean, there was a lot of money floating around, but that was because of the uh, the weirdness of the way CD pricing worked and people replacing their their collections. And it was a, all sorts of sort of perfect storm of commercialization of packaged music that uh, that was going to end anyway. And, and it did it did end much more dramatically than people maybe anticipated, but it opened up access and it opened up the possibility. Uh, you know, one of the main reasons I, I put my music out on Spotify is it's, it's the easiest way for my mom to listen to it. <laughs> she she doesn't have a CD player anymore. You know, I could send her a USB stick. She wouldn't know what to do with it. But I'm like, mom, here, I'll sign you up for Spotify. Just click here. Here, I'm going to like myself right here. There you go. Now it'll pop up. And so, you know, the, 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 it's, we're, we're working out all these things. And I think you're, I, I like the, the way you're, you're working towards thinking about loneliness, gender discrimination, right? Who gets a voice, who doesn't, all that's super important. Uh, but we all have a role in that as well is by saying, well, I don't have to listen to the, all that. I don't have to listen to Joe Rogan. Uh, <laughs> you know? And so, uh, but you know, not, not, not to defend Joe Rogan. I got no love. Uh, right. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, just to say that, 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 that we, we may be, we may be, ha I guess that was, that's been my, my experience in studying anime and studying hip hop is that, uh, the people who have succeeded in these realms have done so despite everyone telling them it was impossible. <laughs> and so when people tell you it's impossible, just keep looking for somebody else who says, no, I think it's pretty cool. You might be all right. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, yeah, no, I completely agree that the technology is and the access is unprecedented and awesome. And uh, we just need to do a little finagling to, you know, make it a little more fair to artists and stuff like that. Absolutely. I agree. Is there anything that you want to plug uh, specifically? You want to plug SoundCloud again, Spotify, et cetera, stuff like that, radio show? What do I have? Yeah, my radio show is called Near and Far. It's on WMBR.org, Tuesdays, 7, 8 p.m. Uh, and there's an archive uh, at Mixcloud slash Ian Condry. Uh, you can find me there. Uh, and... Yeah, no, just, you know, follow your dreams. That's, that's my, uh, <laughs> that's my advice. And, uh, it was great talking with you. Yeah. Likewise, folks, you heard it here. Follow your dreams. <laughs>